Thanks for pressing play. This is Lockhead on Marketing. And today we go deep on a big, powerful idea called movement marketing with a legendary entrepreneur, category designer, and company builder turned venture capitalist, David Sachs from Kraft Ventures. Now, um, David is a legend in Silicon Valley. He's the founding chief operating officer of PayPal. He's the founder and CEO of Yammer, which sold to Microsoft for over a billion dollars. And he's been an early investor in companies like Facebook, Twitter, Uber, SpaceX, Airbnb, Bird Scooters, Slack, and more. How do you like that list? (laughs) Incredible. Um, And he's written this um, blog post recently on this idea. Uh, And it's a simple, powerful idea that legendary innovators don't just market a company or a product or a service. They create a movement that changes things. And frankly, it's a seminal part of designing and dominating uh, a new category. And um, he's got some powerful insights that he, he wrote in this post. Check out our show notes for this episode for a click through to the post. And uh, we dig into it deep. I'm telling you, if you care about changing the future, this episode is pure gold with David. We are brought to you by NetSuite from Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. Visit netsuite.com slash different today and learn why thousands of businesses Tens of thousands of businesses rely on NetSuite as the foundation for their future. Visit netsuite.com slash different today. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, helping you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, as in data to everything. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. So, David, it's great to see you again. Yeah, great to great to see you too. Great to be back. You should come back more often. You have a very <laughs> unique brain, and it's fun to hang out in. Yeah, well, I'm happy happy to be here. <laughs> so, you've uh, been doing a lot of thinking, and you wrote this great piece on movement marketing, which I, of course, agree with very much. But I thought you were uh, incredibly thoughtful in, in in the way you put it together. So, tell me about movement marketing. Yeah. Um, well, it's if you look at the the founders who have built uh, great companies, you know more than great companies, the the really transcendent companies, they seem to have done more than just create a company or even a category, but they seem to have created a movement around their their company. And um, so I started to think about, well, wh- why is that? It'd be, you know, it's it's folks like you know Elon Musk at Tesla or, or Mark Benioff at Salesforce. Uh, they seem to to stand for something much larger than just a company. You know, at, at Tesla, it's about moving the world to sustainable energy. It's not even just about electric cars. It's about this larger mission of of moving the world to sustainable energy. And and Salesforce has always had this mission of you know not just CRM or sales and marketing software or getting better at like go to market, but at moving business to the cloud. And when you hear these founders talk about these things. You know, it's it's just at like a different level. It's much more up leveled and inspiring than what you typically hear from startup founders. And so I started to think about 
what is it that makes them so effective at marketing? And, you know, some of these thoughts are inspired by, you know, things that I did as a founder CEO at Yammer. And some of them were learned from, you know, reading Benioff's book where he describes the tactics and some of them I think I've gotten from you. And so I kind of, you know, synthesize all of these things into, you know, kind of a 13 point blog. And it, it seems to, uh, it seems to have caught fire in a very uh, uh, fantastic way. I'm stoked to see that. Uh, based on the numbers, the hits I'm getting on Twitter and LinkedIn, because you mentioned me in the article, yeah. if, if the volume I'm getting is indicative of the volume you're getting, it, it seems to have uh, caught fire. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that because it's fire season in California, but it's, it's, and you can't say anything's gone viral anymore. So what do we say now, David? <laughs> well, it's, um, if it's hit a nerve, I think that's, that's good. You know, I think what I've tried to do is, is make it very practical, like a how-to blog. You know, it's like, you know, here's what you do. Here's the playbook. You know, it's not just about praising these these great founders, but um, but trying to like analyze or kind of reverse engineer like w- what is the playbook that they've used to be able to do this so it becomes more accessible yeah. to to every founder. And of course, Elon and and Mark Benioff may be uniquely good at running these playbooks, but that doesn't mean that every founder can't get meaningful lift out of um, using them to some degree. Yes. And, um, and so what I've tried to do is, is lay out the, the, you know, the tactics, um, the, th- this area of marketing is typically called earned marketing mm-hmm. because you can't just buy it. You have to earn it. Um, and I think there's like a really important dichotomy that I've discovered I- in marketing where, you know, marketing is a lot like the SAT. There's like two sections, there's math and verbal, and there's a whole discipline of marketing performance marketing around, you know, spending money on paid campaigns to generate leads. And yes. um, it's, it's very mathematical. It's a science. There's a formula for ROI. And, you know, the people who are good at that are very quantitative and they're good at kind of stacking up small incremental gains. And they just repeat it enough times that it adds up to something. Um, that's kind of the math section of marketing. But there's another section of marketing. It's kind of the verbal section, which is about, you know, messaging, brand, content, press, influencers, all of those things that define who you are. And obviously, that's undeniably important. I mean, defining who you are to the world is one of the most important things that a founder can be doing. But the metrics are vague and elusive. And so therefore, uh, because it's hard to measure, I think a lot of founders don't necessarily spend the time on it. They don't really know how to approach it. And and sometimes it's, it's dismissed, um, but we you know we are talking about that sort of the the, the verbal section of of the SAT that you know the, how do you earn this type of marketing and um, you know it's I guess one analogy for it is if you think about sales as hand to hand combat being able to do this kind of marketing is like having an air force right and um, so it's very powerful when it works I couldn't agree with you more of course. Um, the other thing I think that is a, a, an important distinction that I'd like to bounce off you and see how it resonates is uh, most of what marketing is about, I, th- I think, it is what you, I think, described as performance marketing. That is to say, we do something, it ultimately yields in an acquisition of a customer, and then there's a lifetime value of a customer and so forth. And I think of, and of course, that's very important. I'm not in any way dismissing the importance of it. It's incredibly important. And I think it's important to underscore that that work 
is about capturing existing demand. I believe what you're talking about, because I think it's a seminal part of category design, is all about creating net new demand. Right. You're creating a movement to drive a set of thinking around an idea, around a a vision for the future, around a, a problem that hasn't been addressed or viewed in the way that the founder views it uh, or or you know as we talk about some from twos you see you see a, a possibility in the world in the future that isn't what it is today and you say I want to bring that forward right and so you're creating a new thing and you know of course you talk about Elon and he he, he is in no way shape or form competing with car companies is he well he's sort of transcended car companies I think it's a great example where you look at all these legacy car companies buying Super Bowl ads, and it's completely futile, the spending. I mean, what, what does it get them? Elon's never spent a dime on advertising. I mean, not, I mean, not a penny as far as I'm aware. And the mind share that he's got is just, you know, beyond the, you know, every other car company in the world. Now, part of that is because the product is awesome. You know, marketing can't make up for a bad product, no. but marketing can be an amplifier of all those other efforts. And and he's definitely, he definitely understands how, how to do it. I think, you know, I think you make a really great point about capturing existing intent versus creating, you know, new demand. But I think part of, but, but I'm not sure that it, it's true to say that movement marketing can't, you know, that, that, that it doesn't operate on, on both levels. I think what's going on with, um, I, I think that that paid marketing is so expensive that it's too expensive a way to generate, you know, demand that doesn't already exist, right? It's too expensive a way to create, you know, awareness or a category. Um, and so if you're trying to use it that way, you know, it reminds me of kind of the, like, you know, early days of, of dot-com where people were spending $100 million on banner ads on Yahoo or something. And it was just like, you know, flushing money, you know, or pissing in the ocean, whatever like metaphor you want to use, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just too expensive a way to create that awareness. And so the, so the question is, well, how do you create that awareness for free? And I think the idea is, well, you know, if you're not going to buy people's attention, you have to, again, you have to earn it. And the, the way to do that, you can't just be talking about your own self-interest. No one's willing to give you their attention for free for for that purpose you have to talk about something larger you have to talk about a cause that they're interested in and um so so the metaphor i've used in this this piece is that startup evangelism is a lot like you know a grassroots political campaign and you know it's, we're in election season and a lot of people are thinking about political movements and how they get started and take hold and create change and i think there's a lot of similarities between startup movements and political movements. And I think they use a lot of the same tactics. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, And in my opinion, if you look at the last election through that lens, through what I would call a category design lens, what you had was a innovative new politician pioneering a new category of businessman, politician of celebrity politician so new niche, new category, and didn't market his brand, marketed a point of view, keep uh, make America great again. Right. And then we had in Hillary, classic brand marketing. Her slogan was, I'm with her. 
the pitch was she was the most qualified person ever to run for the presidency. And so they were having a brand conversation. It was about them. He was creating a movement, make America great again. And you can like that movement or not like that movement. Or they even talk about, there was an interview I heard him on a while ago where he talked about, he said, well, MAGA likes blah, blah, blah. Like MAGA is a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Movements happen in politics and they happen in, in business. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point with respect to 2016 that Trump was sort of marketing a movement, whereas Hillary was marketing a brand. I think that's a really uh, interesting point. Um, you know, I don't want to get too political. You know, we're not, the point of the piece isn't to sort of take sides on anything happening politically today, but just to kind of make the observation that whether it's political evangelism or startup evangelism, a lot of the techniques and tactics are the same. And I think founders can learn from those things. Yes. Yes. And uh, I like to say the E in CEO stands for evangelist. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, CEOs are constantly evangelizing and trying to persuade or sell people on their vision. And it, you know, it starts with trying to get employees to join the company. And then it, you know, then it's, um, you know, obviously trying to convince customers that they should trust you enough to, to buy you in those early days when you don't really have the case studies and all the proof that you might want. Uh, and then, you know, you're talking to press and influencers and it never stops. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, you want to, and I guess the hard part about it is, is that if your intuition is completely obvious, if what you're evangelizing for everyone already believes, then it's not likely to be a startup opportunity. You know, big companies probably already own that. Some other company already probably owns that. So, you know, you want to start with an idea, you know, Peter Thiel will call it a secret. You know, what is it that you, you believe that no one else believes or, uh, but it, it could simply be, you know, a counterintuitive point of view or things that people just haven't discovered yet, but that's where the startup always starts. And so it's a continual process to bring people over to that point of view. Because of course, in the beginning, not only do people not get it, they might be opposed to it. You know, I wrote a piece recently on LinkedIn about be careful whose feedback you're listening to. If you're creating and designing a new category, because uh, 10 out of 10 people said they wouldn't pay for bottled water. And there was nearly violent opposition to the cloud. And uh, nobody wanted an automobile, right? Right. And so you sort of have to be crazy to imagine a new future. And when you're, when you're trying to open people's minds up to this new thinking, it's a very different thing than brand marketing or performance marketing or any of these other things that most people have been trained in. Most people haven't been trained in movement marketing as a mechanism to change thinking and put your company on a mission and design and dominate a whole new category and create, you know, billions or more in value. Yeah. So I, the, the one thing you can never do is ask consumers what they want. That will never give you a good idea for a company because consumers don't really know what they want until you present it to them. And then they are hopefully delighted. Um, Keith Raboy had a, a bit on this the other day that he, he compared um, building a startup to, to making a movie where, you know, you, you don't go ask consumers whether they're going to like your movie or what kind of movie you should make before you make it you you have to you know you 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 make it first then you you create a trailer and then you sell the tickets and hopefully people come um and i think that 
that, that it, now I, the, the one thing I would add to that is that, um, unlike a movie, which is kind of, you know, one and done, unless maybe there's a sequel or something, Starbs have the, the opportunity to continually iterate. And so I guess it'd be more like a TV show or something like that. You can make it better. You can, you know, after your premiere, you can gauge the reaction to it and then start to adjust. And, and so smart founders are always paying attention to the reaction. They're not so set in their vision that they become, you know, immune from criticism or feedback. I think it's important to pay attention to who's using your product and why, you know, I was, I was just, uh, surfing youtube the other day and i came across an interview with with jack dorsey and he was talking about the beginnings of square and actually what struck me was how similar the beginnings of square were to the beginnings of paypal where you know with with paypal we had this strong conviction that people would want to email money you know we had this idea what if we could just you know email money make it that simple as sending an email you know we thought people would use it but we really had no idea who was going to and what we found is that, so we just launched it, right? We, we made the movie and, and sold the tickets. And, and, you know, thankfully we were paying attention because what we discovered is, you know, I remember the day it happened is that an eBay seller sent us a customer service email asking if she could have permission to display our logo on her, the PayPal logo on her auctions. And it got sent to me ironically because I was handling the company's legal affairs, you know, not because I was running the company's product. I was doing both because... The team was so small, but you were the chief chief counsel as yeah, well as all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was it was pretty crazy. So, you know, my reaction was, well, well, first of all, we're going to give her permission. We're not going to like block her for violating our you know trademark or something. But more importantly, you know, I, I turned to the guy in the office next to me, saying, "Wait, this is pretty remarkable. She's actually taken the eBay sellers taking the time to turn the PayPal logo into this you know button she can put on her on her auctions." And I'm like you know, what, what does that mean? And so we went over to the eBay website, we just searched the word PayPal and we found that, you know, hundreds of auctions were already using PayPal. It turned up in search because PayPal was mentioned in the item description as a possible method of payment. And so we said, well, here's actually a market for our product. We had gone kind of broadly horizontal, but we had paid attention. And from that moment on, we just dropped everything and went all in on the eBay market. We realized that was the key beachhead uh, market and that we had to win that market in, in order to get to all the other ones. And so, yeah, that was sort of the, 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 this combination, I think of just not asking consumers what they want, but then once you've given it to them, see who's using your product and why, Yes, you know? And so this, the, the similarity to square that I learned listening to this interview with Jack is that, you know, he said that in the early days of Square, they just thought they were, you know, creating this piece of hardware you plug into your iPhone or iPad and you could swipe a credit card and be a way to accept payments. And, you know, what they discovered in, in talking to users is that a lot of those users who are typically small businesses, startups, entrepreneurs had actually been rejected by their local bank or merchant acquirer from being able to get a credit card account mm-hmm. because they didn't have the credit history. And, you know, the banks were all running this credit check. And so the the insight that came out of that was that Square realized that its mission was really about increasing access to the system. And so they kind of doubled down on all the, the features that would lead to greater access. Um, most notably, I think they, they did something that we did at PayPal as well, which is you stop 
trying to verify the merchant and you and, and instead you look at the transaction you basically do your fraud checks at the transaction level not the merchant level because if you do everything at the merchant level you put these guys through too many hoops you know like 20 page underwriting processes and you know and and you and you look at their fico score and things like that and which you know have which aren't a very good way to um to detect fraud anyway you really want to look at like what's happening at the transaction level and so square came to a similar insight as paypal and um anyway i thought it was pretty remarkable that they basically did for the online to offline world what what paypal had done in the in the desktop pc era yeah that is an interesting insight and in both cases there was sort of a lot of intentionality around the opportunity that you saw, a new way to think about things, a new problem, and therefore a new opportunity. But at the same time, it requires paying attention to the right things. Right. Right. When you see this behavior, and it's behavior from the kind of customer you want, you know, as opposed to the uh, Kenneth Olson, I can't see why anybody's ever going to want a computer in their home. <laughs> I guess I would call it market discovery. Now, I think Keith probably you know, we were talking about Keith Rabboy's movie analogy. I think you would probably disagree at this point because he thinks that great founders have everything figured out from the beginning, but you know, and that it's all in their, like, <laughs> you know, their series, a uh, deck. And I do, I do actually think that was true of like, you know, his company open doors. He seems to have figured it all out, you know, but he was thinking about it for 10 years. That has not been my experience. You know, my experience has been that the founder starts with a really clear idea of the product they want to build, you know, their product first founders, so, the, so they have clarity in, in their mind's eye of what that product's going to look like and what the UI is and why it's going to be valuable to a user. But they're a little bit hazy on who exactly the buyer is going to be or like how the market will be defined, you know, or what the business model might even be. Like those details are a little bit hazy. And so what they do is they launch the product first, then, you know, look carefully to see, well, who's using this product and why? And then you come to, you know, what I've called the market insight, which is, oh, like, okay, for PayPal, it's not people who are splitting dinner tabs. That was probably a stupid idea to begin with, but it's people on eBay who are actually small business sellers who, you know, don't want to go through a Wells Fargo underwriting process or something like that. And for Square, it was, well, we're going to get this, you know, the Square reader out, this little Square dongle you put in your your iPad. But, you know, they're very quickly going to realize that their market are all these, you know, small businesses, solo entrepreneurs who can't, you know, because their FICO score can't get a, you know, classic merchant account. And so you have this market insight and based on seeing who's actually using it and why. And then, you know, the the, the third part is you you then lean into that insight. You you operationalize the insight. And um, you know, and and so at, at PayPal, the the leaning in was again just dropping everything going in you know all in on the eBay ecosystem we created this uh feature where you know we realized okay well wait if this eBay seller wants to add a PayPal logo to her auctions you know not only are we going to let her do that we're going to do it for her so we started collecting eBay login credentials and we would run a script to actually just add PayPal logos to every single auction well before you know it you know some huge percentage of eBay auctions were now advertising PayPal and the thing just went explosively viral from there. So you, you figure out the, the insight and then you lean into it from a marketing standpoint and you, you operationalize it from a company building standpoint, you build those fraud detection expertise that you need, 
you know, or what, whatever the case may be. So that, that's been my experience is you kind of, there's, there's, there's a learning process. You know, I think different founders do it different ways. I don't know that there's just one way to do it, but that, that's been my experience about, I'd say particularly about how product first kind of consumerized uh, founders go about, you know, a- attacking these SaaS or enterprise markets. Thank you. That was awesome. Uh, you and I have obviously talked a lot about, you've written a bunch about um, defining a category, creating a category. How do you think about sort of category design in the context of m- movements or the other way around, however you think about it? Yeah. Well, actually, it might, it might be good to go through this kind of playbook, you know. Um, yeah, do you want to go through this, yeah. the steps or the, the components? Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, the, f- the first step is you have to define the larger cause. You know, we've talked about this, you know, just in the same way that political movements rally people to a cause larger than themselves, so to do startup movements, you know. And so it's it's, you know, if you go to any Tesla launch event, it always begins, you know, before any product unveiling, they're going to explain the need to move the world sustainable energy. You know, if you watch any of Benioff's speeches at Dreamforce, He's going to begin by talking about the need to move business to the cloud. It's, you know, he's not going to get into the details of features, you know, not till like way, way, way down in the presentation. And, you know, figuring out what this larger cause is, is, is sort of the first step, I think, in defining a movement. Peter Thiel has this saying that the best startups are like a cult that believes in something true. You know, you have to, what, what is that cult-like belief that you have? Because you need it for both internal morale and external marketing. So I think that's the starting point. I think the... It also, I hate mm-hmm. to interrupt you, yeah, but go, it, from an internal point of view, I've always believed this, and it creates a a, a purposeful us and them, right? There, There's us in the company, but more importantly, there's us who believe in this cause. Right. I remember early on realizing at a user conference that when you speak to your users in the tech business that you and I are in, don't talk to them like they're customers. Talk to them the same way you talk to your people. We're all in this movement. We're all pioneering this thing. We're all trying to make this difference. We're all trying to hopefully move something exponentially forward in a powerful, positive way, right? And so I realized that you could get up and give – tonally anyway, the same kind of talk at the user conference that you could give at the company kickoff. Totally. I mean, that's right. Because I think, especially in the early days of a startup, so many of your users are champions. You know, um, at Yammer, when we we started bringing social into the enterprise, you know, there was always that power user who was really passionate about it. And they weren't necessarily the person who had authority or budget in the organization, but they had a passionate belief that this would make their company better you know, that, that it could surface information that people needed and make the company more collaborative. And a lot of those people created roles for themselves um, in their company. They ended up, you know, becoming like the head of collaboration or something like that in these companies. And, you know, we, we, we but it started with their passion and, 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 and being a champion for what we're trying to do. But a lot of them actually, it, it ended up changing their career, career trajectory. It was really interesting to see some of the people we even hired ourselves just to come work directly at Yammer. It's like, well, you really understand this. If you're the one bringing this into your company, you know, why don't you come do this at Yammer and you can do this for a hundred companies. <laughs> and uh, so we, we recruited some of those champions too. Um, I yeah. remember there was one person who tweeted about um, how she had tried to bring Yammer into her company and then her boss had, had shut it down. And um, 
I, I thought it was kind of brave of her to be complaining uh, about Twitter, uh, about, you know, about this. So, you know, I offered her a job, you know, on, on Twitter and um, <laughs> I didn't want her to get like, you know, canceled because of her support for Yammer. So, um, so we, uh, so I made her a job offer on Twitter and she took it. She ended up coming to work for us and, uh, and was up, she a good employee? She was great. Um, That's she, awesome. she ended up being, uh, one of our trainers and, uh, you know, uh, headed up the, the training program for, um, new sales reps and CSMs. And then I, you know, I rehired her at, at, at Zenefits. So, <laughs> and you know, when you hire a person like that, they already are an evangelist, right? This is a fulfillment of a dream. Exactly. I mean, and in the early days of your movement, you want everyone, you want people to be passionate. You know, I think uh, that that is something. Everyone's got their like theories and the the long laundry list of things that you need to hire for. But um, but I do think that hiring people who are passionate about your movement is that is a prerequisite. You know, now they have to in order to hire for that. I think you have to be able to articulate that you have to be able to explain what it is to then draw people into it. And so, you know, if a startup isn't getting passionate, uh, recruits, uh, you need to ask, well, are you articulating what it is about you that people should care about? Now, I think half of it's done for you by the product, you know, that it all starts with, with that. If the product's not good, then, there's nothing to get passionate about. And and by the same token as even if the, if the product is good and you're not really that great at marketing, you will get a lot of the benefit by people just discovering the product. But again, the best is when you can use great marketing and articulation of what you're trying to do. And you combine that with a great product. And again, it's a tremendous amplifier. So I think, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the champions are a great place to start. I think that your, your point about the us versus them I, I, you know, I really like that too. Um, when you, when you think about what Benioff did with the cloud, I think what was really smart about it was if you go back to the early two thousands, um, people don't really remember this now because the cloud is kind of like default it's accepted, but there was so much resistance to the cloud and specifically to a multi-tenant architecture where people somehow thought that their data wouldn't be safe if it was in the cloud, if it was in a multi-tenant architecture. They all wanted you to burn a disk and so they could run it on premise and um, you know on, on on the customer's own servers. People don't remember what a struggle it was to convince, you know, large corporations, especially, but really anybody that they should trust. Even when we started Yammer back in 2008, it was our number one objection was um, great. This this looks like a nice little product just, you know, sent to us on a disc. Um, and, uh, it really took us about a year to overcome that objection. And so in a way, I think what was brilliant about what Benioff did with the cloud is unless he made the cloud acceptable, it was going to kill his business anyway. You know, it was this like really he had strong to be the evangelist. He had to be the evangelist. And, um, you know, so we tried to do something similar as well. You know, we realized that there was, there was a lot of, um, Concern not just about the cloud, but also about, well, you know, should companies allow their employees to share information in a very open way? You know, like the whole idea of collaboration software, I think, was seen in a suspect or dangerous way in the same way that the cloud was 10 years before. And so we had to be an evangelist for the entire idea of collaboration in, you know, in the enterprise. Well, and it was also made worse by Facebook in some ways, right? Because at the time, people thought, 
Facebook will, if you're, if you were the CIO right. of a major corporation, Facebook's this thing your kid's on and it's right. for sharing photos and silliness, right? It's sort of, it was viewed, I think, maybe somewhat similar to maybe how people view TikTok today as sort of a frivolous right. silliness, right? And right. so when you sort of say, oh, well, you know, there's Facebook for the enterprise, right? Which was the label we all got in one way or another. You're sort of, it, we all had to try to overcome that, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the panic of the day was that employees were spending all their time on Facebook and they would somehow leak important, you know, company right. information, trade secrets or something on Facebook and Post, posting the S one before it filed and things like yeah, that. Yeah. It, it really made no sense. You know, again, it's, it's sort of this, this idea that, that, you know, you couldn't have two browser tabs open. It's kind of, you know, but in any event, yeah. So, you know, there was, a, it was a double-edged sword to be compared to Facebook. I think on the whole, the metaphor was helpful for us. Um, we, we actually leaned into it. We just called it enterprise social networking um, because it made it imme- immediately interesting, you know, as a, as a category definition, it made it interesting to everybody who was interested in social networking at the time, which is pretty much everybody, you know, you remember the the movie, the social network came out and um, you know, this phenomenon with Facebook, you know, was hockey sticking and getting to a billion users. And so hitching our wagon to that, um, you know, the, the, the beauty of the framing around enterprise social networking was it immediately said, no, everything you know about social networking, that's just the consumer side. That's just half of it. And the other half is, is what's going to happen in the enterprise. And so it was a great, you know, launching off point for us. And, you know, we had to make it acceptable anyway. And so, so one of the things I think you're trying to do with your, with your cause, um, is make acceptable, something that might be an objection today that's going to kill you anyway if you don't flip people around you know on that you know Elon leading into the the benefits of electric cars you know unless he can make unless he can convince people that the world should move to electric cars then he's not likely to sell very many Teslas one of my favorite expressions in this regard david is if you want to sell bibles you got to make some christians <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so that's right. You know, you can't just focus on, or, you know, and, 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 and I, I guess to go, go back to your point about, um, if, if there are, uh, if all the Christians already exist, then the market for Bibles is probably already, it's, it's probably already owned by somebody. And exactly. so, yeah. And so, you know, you're trying to create new religions. Cause competing for share in the existing ones is a bad idea. So let's start right. Dianetics. <laughs> See what <laughs> <Yeah>. happens. <laughs> yeah. You'll have a monopoly on that. <laughs> and then number two, articulate the problem uh, better than anyone else. And this is one, of course, you and I are very passionate about. But how do you think about this? David? Well, I, I I just stole this from you. Um, <laughs> so, but I I I gave you some credit here. Um, like like you've always said, if you speak more articulately about the problem than anyone else, people will just assume you have the solution. So, you want to, you know, all campaigns are about the the need for change. Um, that's true for startup movements as well as political movements. But the starting point in describing the need for change is to articulate the problem. And so, you know, always find way, and this is where I think you can start to make the cause more concrete, you know, is that you can start to speak to the specific pain and problems that users are experiencing. You know, you should talk about, you should grab onto news or anecdotes, customer anecdotes or data that illustrates it. You know, you need to describe, you know, you need to make tangible the, the 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 pain that everyone's currently experiencing and how much better the world would be if this problem were solved. 
you know, and I think, yes. so the, the, the metaphor I use again, to go back to, to go back to uh, this idea of, of, of sort of the analogy to, to politicians is that I think, you know, most founders are like, you know, policy wonks, which is, you know, which is to say bad politicians, right? They just want to talk about the, you know, the same way that a, a policy wonk would just want to talk about policies and not the larger um, framing. You know, I think most founders just want to talk about their features. And, um, you know, I think a point you've made is, look, until you articulate the problem and then why they should care about your sol- solution, uh, no, no one's going to care about your features, um, except for the super fans you've already got. Yeah. The, you know, the, the one that is sort of screaming in my head, and I just wanted to see when he said it, it, it was October 28th, 1980. This is the exact seminal reason, in my opinion, uh, why uh, Ronald Reagan became president, because there was no framing of really what this election was about. And the minute he said, this is about, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Right. And most people at the time with the energy crisis and the hostages and, you know, other, you know, the seventies, there were a lot of, there was a lot of turbulence going on. Right. Right. And so he framed the the conversation that way. And once he did, Carter was toast. Right. Or Bill Clinton saying it's about the economy stupid, you know, um, that, that was and the interesting thing is at least thus far, nobody has framed this election season in that way. Right. Yeah, it's hard to think of like the one line thing. I guess the maybe the one the one liner that I think Trump is sort of running with now as the framing for his campaign is that Biden is a Trojan horse for, you know, for for the radical elements of his party. I mean, that's sort of the or, you know, a puppet or whatever. And that 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 is definitely what he is campaigning on. What Biden, I guess, is campaigning on, it's um, I guess it's sort of like a return to normalcy. Um, but, um, but it does feel a little bit like the, the personal branding thing that Hillary did in 2016. It's exactly the same mistake. Yeah. Where it's like, it's like, you should just vote for me because of who I am. You know, I'm not, I'm not the other guy. And, um, and he's not really making the case for, for what it exactly he would do. Um, you know, and I, and I, and he's, and he's not really giving the sense that he's in charge you know, uh, right now of, of his campaign or, or anything. And so, um, yeah, what, what I think Biden needs to do now more than anything is to come forward and say, look, I'm in charge here, you know, not, not, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, and here is what, you know, I stand for and here's what I would do. Um, and he needs to, to, to the point of your article, one, to find a larger cause and to articulate the problem that the cause is addressing. And I was, stunned to see but it's a mistake the democrats make over and over and over again so maybe i shouldn't be stunned uh but it's like I, they keep making i'm like fuck aren't they aren't you gonna learn they have no point of view and so the slogan currently is build back better right that's exactly the same as hillary i'm the most qualified person for the job right to your point a return to normalcy well you know that's going to resonate with some people, but that's a brand conversation. That's not a mission. That's that's not a point of view. That's not that's not something that we can get fired up about. Um, that's not right. even hope and change from all the Obama era. Um, so, a nobody really has framed this problem yet, and and b neither one of them have articulated a mission. Trump was a master at it the first time around, mm-hmm. and I'm quite shocked that he hasn't figured out what the 2.0 version is of MAGA. 
Um, right. But but keep America great didn't really fly given the economy and the virus and all that other stuff. I think COVID totally threw his plans for a loop. You know, I think if you go back to January or February and his State of the Union, he sort of laid out the case for his reelection, and it was very much this "keep America great." And then COVID came along, and we had this huge economic recession. And so, um, I think, and, and he wasn't able to do rallies, which I think is his way of like field testing messages with his, you know, with with supporters. I don't think he listens to pollsters. He just kind of listens to the roar of the audience and decides whether the line works or not. Um, so, I think you know he was definitely knocked off his game. But I think as the it, as the economy recovers, and if it does over the next two months, um, and now he's doing rallies again, he's trying to kind of go back to to the pre-COVID case for for his reelection. But but I think he's also added in this component of um, you know I, I'm not the radical left, and um, you know look look at the looting and burning and chaos in American cities, and you know I'll I'll, I'll stop that, and the other guy won't. So yeah, I mean that's that's sort of his. I think what he's running on and to your point about Biden not having a message. I mean, I think there are people in the democratic party who do have a strong point of view, but the, the activists, the, the people who are most motivated in the democratic party right now are it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty left-wing base. And, and, and so it, it's not clear that, that Biden wants to, to use their message. Cause I think it would alienate a lot of independence. Um, and at the same time, if he was to construct his own message, he might alienate them and he needs the turnout. And so it feels like Biden is being held hostage a little bit by the, um, you know, by the, the, the far left elements of, of his base. And, and of course it doesn't help that. And, and this sort of furthers the problem that this perception that he's not really in charge of his campaign, you know? So one way or the other, he should come out. I think he would benefit by coming out with a strong, statement a strong point of view he's got to have a point of view he's got yeah. to be driving uh to everything we've been talking about some kind of um some kind of movement that that people yes. can get behind right right now the other one and the third one here you talk about attack the status quo and of course uh, i i love this I, I love to get into a good fight <laughs> so <laughs> why do we have to be attacking something here david well because you know every movement is about the need for change and if you want to change the status quo you you need to attack it you need to describe what's wrong with it um now you can't just go out there and say the status quo is bad you got to figure you got to you got to figure out what version of the status quo is is the problem you've got to you've got to name that enemy and so the thing that benioff did that was very successful was was naming software as the enemy you know he created that that logo with the word software crossed out no software, yeah. No software and created a 1-800 no software number. And, you know, even everyone on his team didn't want to do it for the simple reason. Well, wait. We sell this, software. <laughs> we sell software. What do you mean? Like, how could software be bad? I think, you know, what, what Benioff meant was the software that you had to install, which at the time in the early days of the cloud, that was pretty much all software or 90% of it, whatever. So, you know, I think that there's, there's a good um, uh, lesson in there which is Benioff didn't let the caveats and disclaimers prevent him from going with the most provocative yes. uh, message. And the most provocative way of attacking the status quo was to name something as the enemy that was not altogether bad, that you know, software in a lot of ways was good. And, but, but explaining what you mean by no software is something you can do once you have everyone's attention. Yes. You know? 
as I as I've described it to entrepreneurs in the past uh, in this regard is you've got to attack something and make it really bad, like genital cancer. <laughs> right. So if you can make installing software on right. premise equal genital cancer, now right. we're talking. Right. <laughs> I think I think that's so. I I, I think. You, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, obviously, if you can make the status quo seem really unattractive, then that works. Um, I think, and, and and that's like the most straightforward way of doing it. I think sometimes it can also work to name something as the enemy that people might actually initially think is good, but once you explain it to them, it turns out to be bad. So we have a a company called um, called Vendor. They're, it helps their customers get the best price for software. It's a it's a SaaS buying platform, and they will take over all of your um, your SaaS buying and make sure that you get the best price because um, you know they've got all the data from all these different contracts that they're managing, and they can make sure that you basically get MFN. And so the founder, you know, asked me, well, you know, he he wanted to come out with a, a no discounts message, and the the enemy that he was going to name was was discounts. And my initial reaction was, well, but discounts sounds like something that people like. You know, doesn't everyone want a discount? And then he explained to me, well, sure, but the problem is that, you know, the, the reason you want a discount is because everyone else is getting one. And, and then you have to wonder about whether you're getting the biggest discount or whether somebody else is. And so you don't really know if it's fair or not, and it's not transparent. And that's the whole problem with pricing in the SaaS world is that, it's not just the list price. Everyone knows that there's a different price that's the real price. And that's what kind of creates the need for us to do what we do. And if we are successful long-term at getting everyone the best price, there will be no discounts anymore because everyone will just be getting the best price. And so in a way, his enemy is discounts. And I said, you know what? That's actually a really provocative way of framing what you're doing. You're immediately going to get everyone's attention to explain why something that initially seems attractive discounts or software or whatever is actually the enemy. And so I agree with you that if you can frame your enemy as cancer, yes, that will win. But I also think there's a, there's, there's also a playbook where you could take on something that initially might have a positive connotation, but you can flip it. And, and, and I, I would only do that if you could like a, make sure you, you really can flip it and B whether the, um, whether it's actually like so provocative that you'll get the chance to explain it. Like if you take on something that's a, po- that's seemingly positive and it's so, it's so positive that, you know, people will just dismiss what you have to say. Out of, like if it actually causes you not to get people's attention, then it fails, right? It's not going to work. But if, but if it can actually get you the attention to explain your point of view, then I think it's pretty interesting. Well, it's funny that you mentioned this. This is exactly what we've done with uh, Follow Your Different. And it's a point of view that I believe it's why I started the podcast, which is the traditional interview is complete, inauthentic bullshit. (laughs) And my premise for that, here's the POV, right, is, well, what what is an interview? First of all, you have a well, uh, successful media trained, well media trained professional guru genius like yourself and your PR people have told you, you know, and you've been trained no matter what, here are your three talking points and whatever he says, bridge back, 
right? And we, we all see it, right? They say, well, Jim, tell us what you think about the economy. Well, the first thing is we need to think about healthcare if we're going to get to the economy. And he just wanted to talk about healthcare, right? And you see it a right. million times. So there's the pre-prepared talking points. And that collides with the uh, prefab narrative that the producers and the host want and the, and the questions they've created and so forth. And then, of course, they edit the thing up into just the good parts or the value bombs or the sound bites, right? And so mm. when, we, when you and I experience an interview, that's what we experience and it's slickly packaged and all that. And my premise is that's deeply inauthentic. And the advent of pod, the reason that evolved was the lack of um, time and the cost of time on radio and television, right? And so you couldn't have a meaningful conversation about something. You had to just get to the talking points. And so I reject all of it. And so we, the machine we're raging against is the standard interview, particularly around a conversation about business or something important in people's lives, et cetera. The more important and consequential the conversation, the stupider an interview becomes. Mm, and yeah. so we built the whole podcast predicated on, I know you like Fox, NPR, and all that other stuff. It's actually bullshit. Right. Yeah, it's people doing sound bites. So that's our version of what you just described. <laughs> Yeah, you want to be like the anti-podcast podcast, anti-interview interviewer, or something like that. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. So I, th I think that can be provocative, you know, is when you take on the thing that you initially seem to be doing. And then number four is define a category, which I think we've talked yeah. about. Is there anything yeah. you wanted to add there? Well, it's just the, I think once you've articulated the, the need for, for change and attack the status quo, I think the, the category is the solution to the problem. You set up the problem. Now you're going to pause it the category as the solution. Um, and for the simple reason, I think that if you just simply say that you are the solution, that's not like credible, like what you do is the solution to the problem. And the category is the crispest, shortest descriptive way of saying what it is you do. You know, Elon went so far as to say that if Tesla failed, but succeeded in moving the auto industry, to electric cars, then it will have fulfilled its mission. And that's a great way of, of putting the category before yourself that you're saying, well, you know, the category is electric cars. And if we bring about that category, we will have succeeded. Now, you know, the reality is that if you bring about the shift to that category and you defined it and you're the leader of that category, of course, you're going to benefit from it. You know, it's very unlikely that, you know, electric cars would become the norm, but you know, Tesla you wouldn't benefit fail. from that. But, yeah. but if you simply, you know, again, if, if you lead with yourself and not the category, again, you're back to that self-interested thing that doesn't attract a movement. Well, and the thing I always try to explain to entrepreneurs and marketers about this is I think in the marketing world, we've way over rotated on brand. And the reason it's a problem is the brands are about the company and or the product. The category is about the customer. Right. And mm -hmm. so it has to resonate. It, I, I have, you have to tell me why, why should I care? Why does this matter? Why is this important to me? What problem does this solve to me? And, mm -hmm. and if I think the category of muscle cars are cool, well, then I start thinking about Camaros and Mustangs and Corvettes and, and, and the like. But if I think, if I think the category is a stupid category, then I'm, I'm not going to start shopping brands. Right.
Yeah, I think the brand is always a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. I think the brand gets built as a result of having a successful product and and movement. Um, not you know, it's not that the the movement and the product get built as a result of having a successful brand. You know, is it wrong, David, for one man to love another man? <laughs> 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 that is such a great way of saying it. Wow. Unbelievable. Number five, build the right team. Yeah, I think the insight here just goes back to the math and verbal sections of the SAT. It's very hard to find people who score 1,600, you know. Um, you know, math and verbal, left side, right side of the brain. I think you're better off in most cases, instead of looking for this sort of unicorn hire who can do both, just develop them as separate disciplines and teams in the company if you have to rather than waiting for this like perfect hire, you know, have the team that does performance marketing and their job is to stack up incremental gains on paid campaigns. They're very good at measuring ROI and then have your, you know, VP of comms or, you know, communications or, or what have you, who is focused on branding, messaging, uh, content, uh, again, defining who you are. Um, you know, winning the campaign requires you to have the right team. So make sure you have both elements. It's so funny. Literally yesterday with a company that I've been helping a little bit, I get a, a text from the head of marketing and they're moving forward uh, and trying to drive their category. They defined their category a while ago. It's going well. And so they really want to throw some logs on the fire and and bring thought leadership and you know lead this mission and articulate the point of view and all this good stuff. And so they're creating a strategy to do that around earned media, exactly what we've kind of been talking about. So she says, <laughs> this text and she says well i was just talking to the ceo and the head of sales and and i was wondering do you have any um roi metrics and sort of lead metrics in terms of how this is going to drive uh pipeline and i responded back with um we're having the wrong conversation there's the conversation that's valid that you should have right. called how do we drive pipeline right this is not that right you're not the math guy <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, de I'm definitely not the math guy, but this strategy is not right, that. Right. This is about creating demand 18 to 36 months out in the future, right? as opposed to trying to capture people Googling blah, blah, blah today, whatever your right. category is. Right. But it's funny how even people who sort of understand this approach, uh, when they go to start spending money, <laughs> they take it back to, and how does it help the quarter? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. No, it's 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 definitely a long term investment. Um, you know, and and it's hard to measure. You know, it's 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 hard to measure these things on a quarterly basis. Um, but you 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 certainly know it when you see it. You know, again, Tesla's now by far the most valuable car company in the world, and never spent a dime on advertising. So, how do people know it's about his incredible. products? Yeah. So I think you know w once you figure out the, the the cause and the category, you you want to you want to have the right team, and then you want to have the right tactics. And I think that the rest of the post is basically a summary of you know kind of the the tactics that that you want to use. And you know these are all things that um, I've gotten them from you. I've gotten them from Benioff. I've gotten them from other people. Um, you know, a very important one is is to use customer testimony. Yeah, you know, uh, Benioff really stresses this in Behind the Cloud that the, the his book that the most powerful marketing weapon you have is customer testimony. Right? It's like a it, it's like you know a, a grassroots uh, political campaign where there's nothing as convincing as seeing people organically getting behind the movement. Having that 
testimony from customers that your product is working for them, there's just nothing better, you know, because obviously people are going to be suspicious of any claim that you make, but if it's somebody else making the claim, it's just much more believable. So you, you just need to make sure you get things like customer logos and press releases and case studies and reference accounts be, you know, give discounts for those things in the contract if you have to, or maybe another way of putting it is if someone's asking you for a discount that you're probably going to give them, get a case study in exchange for that. You know, probably yes. won't, you can probably get that for free at that point. Press releases. We always tried to pre-negotiate press releases in, uh, in so- software contracts, uh, speaking at the user conference, things along those lines. And then in the B2C world, of course, it's, it's obvious, but, but pr- probably needs to be said that this idea of social proof, right? Uh, why do you want to have a lot of reviews of, uh, of your product on Amazon? Obviously, mm-hmm. positive reviews, things along those lines. What, when somebody Googles you, uh, what, what, what comes up that's not from your website, right? That shit really matters. So this, mm-hmm. this idea of in the, in the digital world, what are people saying about you? And how does that resonate when people start sniffing around? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, like there's this word in politics, astroturf, hmm. which is when, uh, when people in Washington try to engineer a grassroots political campaign or the appearance of one. I mean, there's a reason why they do that, right? And so grassroots support is great. And if you don't have it initially, then astroturf it. So is that the equivalent of the uh, wannabe uh, Instagram butt model who has no followers (laughs) and decides uh, that uh, he's going to go out and buy a bunch of fake followers from Craplanic stand and make it look like he's a popular butt model? Well, or, like that. <laughs> or, or, or you mentioned customer reviews, like maybe you have to go get 50 friends to tell them like, Hey, can you, you know, can you go write us a review? You know, like, let's just say that those people are, you know, legitimate users of the product. They're not going to say anything untrue, but you know, the re- reality is that you've got to ask them to write the review. It'd be nice if they just did it on their own. If they did it on their own, it'd be truly grassroots you were telling them to do it as astroturfing it. I mean, I let's assume that it's like all above board that everyone is a user of the product and is saying true things, but you still need to like spur them into action to put, yes. put post those, those positive reviews. Yeah. If you take the nefarious twist off of it, I mean, for my, my, <laughs> my, my, my second book niche down, we learned a lot from, from doing play bigger. And yeah. so one of the things we did was way early in the cycle, we started to engage readers and, and podcast listeners and sharing content with them and getting feedback and, you know, uh, having this sort of collaborative thing. And we sort of built a quote unquote street team. And those street team, to your point, became super enthusiastic about the book and this and that and the other. And we tried to give them some Scooby snacks and make make donations and do a whole bunch of things that we did, but uh, all in sort of trying to, A, engage with our listeners and readers in a powerful way, and B, um, have them help us launch the book to their friends and, and drive this thing with some social proof right out the gate. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, now, you know, you know, I love you for, uh, release news and lightning strikes, not dribs and drabs. <laughs> yeah. And I would combine this with the next one, which is just about organizing events to focus attention. I, you know, I, I um, you know, I, I'm in the sca- same school of thought as you that just putting out press releases doesn't penetrate the clutter, you know, putting out some announcement every week that let's say there's 52 of them. That's not as good as having one big quarterly event that, you know, is a lightning strike. And I, and I think the a quarterly event should start, it should always be at like a launch event because new product is, is the, the, the heart, the heartbeat of a startup. Um, 
It's the raison d'etre without, if you're not putting out new product, why do you exist? So you start with a launch event, but to add to that, you combine and you add elements of new customer logos and new metrics or milestones. Hey, we've hit a million users or whatever, 10 million of ARR or whatever it is, or you layer in financing news. We just raised a whatever $15 million series A. And then around all of that, you provide, you know, context again, um, and you remind people of the cause and the movement you're creating. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of these sort of event-driven lightning strikes. Yep. The other thing that I've always found, so the, the external value of it is, I, I hope, clear. The other thing that I've loved about it is there's a real internal value that's kind of cool mm-hmm. around uh, you know, putting a, a stake in the ground out in the future drives engineering. Uh, drives product management in ways that sort of, oh, well, you know, you tell us when it's ready and we'll launch it, right? Right. And I can remember Mike Maple Sr. when he was president at Microsoft saying, well, you can decide when we launch it or you can decide on the features, but you can't decide on both. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Yes, exactly. And so having a launch event is, the, the, the beauty of it is it's at a set date. You know, and the the invites have gone out, and the world is is watching, and you can't postpone it. And so, if you're an engineer in the, in the company, and you know that Elon is going on stage in two months to announce the Model Three, and the invites have gone out, we're not postponing that. You are going to have to work, or you will work. You will internalize that. You will work day and night if you have to to get done whatever it is you need to get done. It's it is a, a tremendous forcing function to plan a flag and say, listen. We're going to do this quarterly launch event. We're going to do it every quarter. And um, and people just have to kind of work towards that. I, I do think it is very, very motivating for the people in the company to know that the CEO will be going on stage, you know, at the next event to show what, off what they're working on. Yes. And it's also a good, you know, forcing function for that CEO to think about how is the audience likely to react to this? You know, and so when you're prioritizing things three months before, six months before, like, are we even working on the right things? Like, why will the audience care about these features? And yes. so so thinking about how, if you're a CEO, thinking about how you're going to present this and how the audience is likely to react to it is a good thought experiment while you're prioritizing what the company is working on. And it makes sure that you don't drift too much off into things that don't matter for customers. Amen. Hallelujah. Preach it. Preach it. <laughs> Uh, now, I love that you included in here community, and I've gotten to a place where I think there might be outliers, so never say never, but it's almost impossible today to build a legendary company, never mind category, and create massive value without having a community. Right. But why do you think it, it rises to this level? Well, so let's first define what a community is, because um, I think there's a lot of different term, you know, sort of nebulous um, definitions of it. And, um, and I, I've come to the realization that community is about one very, very specific thing, which is letting your customers learn from each other, hmm. you know, and th- that's really the key aspect of a community is that the customers can learn from each other. Now, I remember when we created, so a, a Yammer, one of our superpowers was that we had this thing called the Yammer Customer Network. It was a, a, a network for, uh, for all of our customers, all of our customer admins to be talking to each other inside of a Yammer network. And it turned out to be this incredibly powerful thing. Now we had to think about this because wait a second, we're going to introduce all of our customers to each other. You know, what if uh, somebody has a problem? What if somebody hates us? What if somebody 
wants to vent. And of course, when you're a startup and you're moving fast, there's always bugs, there's always complaints, you know, and, um, and so you've got to think about, well, wait, you know, and a, a lot of startups don't like this idea of letting their customers talk to each other because they're afraid of what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my view on it is that the, the gains always outweigh the risks because the gain is that by having these people talk to each other, that, that's how you build a movement, right? Is they're, they're all coming together and they're sharing their enthusiasm. They're sharing their wins. They're getting help from each other, not just from you. And, you know, if somebody has something negative to say, well, you need to hear it anyway. You need to hear yeah. that negative news. And if it's unfair, you'll be surprised to see that somebody else, one of your champions and some other company will jump in to defend you. And yes. that's a lot better than you trying to do it all yourself. Yes. So, so I'm a fan of creating a community somewhere. You know, you could do it. If you can do it on your own product, if you can be dog fooding your own product, that's, that's the best. But Absent that, do it on Facebook, do it on, you know, choose a, you know, choose a product and create one place where you're going to kind of go all in on creating an experience, a place where customers can talk to each other. And I love your simple definition. Community equals customers learning from each other. Right. And, and to your point, aren't, aren't we at a stage in business, if not in life completely of radical transparency? Like, you really it's going to be, it's going to be on Twitter anyway. If people, right. you know, if people have a, you know, how many, how many tweets have I seen every time somebody has a bad experience with an airline, I read about it on Twitter. I mean, you know, the, the, it's going to, the, the negative, you can't hide the negative news. It's better for it to be discussed in a forum where you have some degree of control and where, where you've got some, some super fans who will, you know, help you out. Yeah, I remember back to, I forget what year it was, but um, when Netflix was trying to figure out how to get their business model right as things were shifting from DVDs to the mail, over the mail, to streaming over the web. And and they got, I think they were going to charge customers twice, or I forget exactly what it was, but there was a pricing decision they made that caused a, a, a huge amount of backlash and people were canceling, And if, if you remember this. And very rapidly, I can't remember exactly how many, but, you know, few days, um, Reed Hastings comes out and said, whoops, sorry, we got it wrong and we're not doing it again. And we're right. paying attention and please forgive us. And he was yeah. incredibly transparent and he ate the humble pie in public and everybody mm-hmm. forgave him and he made it right. And of course, <laughs> the rest right. is history. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of um, if if your company makes a mistake, just admit it as quickly as possible. Because unless you admit it, you can't fix it. You know, it's too hard to it's too hard to get all the people inside the company to uh, to to make the changes they need to make. Unless the you know unless the leadership just admits it. Because if you try to deny that it was a mistake or like you know cover it up or whatever, then you know it, you you don't actually fix the problem. So um, I've definitely been a a big fan of of that approach. Now, I also love pick noble fights. Mm -hmm. You're talking to an old warrior who likes to hit things (laughs) and angers my happy place. Yeah. Um, This is one you just don't see that much, though. It's almost considered a little rude today. Right. Yeah. Well, if you want to talk politics, I mean, this is where... um, you know, I think this is one of Trump's main assets is maybe I don't think they're necessarily noble fights, but he certainly is not afraid to pick fights. Probably he picks way too many fights. He's too thin skinned, but, but certainly an ability to pick fights is, um, you know, especially if you're on the, 
I think you have to be on the right side. They do have to be noble fights. But if you're able to to pick noble fights, and maybe another way of putting it is if you're able to draw stark contrasts with a legacy incumbent, you know, that that's a powerful strategy. And so, you know, if you remember when Elon introduced the Cybertruck, he challenged the Ford F-150 pickup truck. Um, you know, they had that that thing where they attached the trucks and were gonna pull each other and whoever as like a tug of war or something. Um, yeah. He so challenged you blew it. Up yeah. first. And then, you know, and then an executive at Ford said, yeah, we'll take you on. And then a few days later, Ford, you know, because they're probably controlled by, you know, corporate PR executives or somebody said, no, 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 we were just whatever. We don't want to do that. Uh, like why, you know, it made them look, they backed down from the challenge. It made them look like they were afraid, you know? And so Elon won. And, you know, Benioff talks in his book about the, the ways they, they, attacked amazon or not amazon but oracle rather um and so yeah and of it's, course siebel right or siebel yeah exactly yeah. now i think you have to do it right it, um and there's there's a few requirements i think uh number one you got to punch up not down which means you got to attack a bigger yeah. company you never want to look like you're hitting down and attacking someone smaller than yourself number two is you, you got to keep it product focused you know um and um and i think number 3 is um is is just you got you want to keep the tone positive um because you know at the end of the day your opponent is really the status quo we talked about that it's not another person or company and so you should avoid personal attacks or or mudslinging you want to stay focused on touting the advantages of your solution and so I, this is where i think like business is fundamentally different than politics is Politics, I think, because it's kind of a zero sum game, is people are very much like tearing each other apart and, you know, bringing, you know, just bringing your opponent down is kind of good enough. I don't, you know, business shouldn't be like that. It should be more positive sum. And so I, I think you want to keep these challenges positive, you know, uh, but, but I, but I do think it can be a useful tactic to, to do that. One of my favorites of this, and it breaks your rule of trying to stay positive. <laughs> R- Rick Bennett, the the secret assassin, uh, advertising assassin in Silicon Valley, who was Larry Ellison's guy in the beginning and Benioff's guy in the beginning. One of the ads he wrote, if I remember right, said something like, stop giving your lunch money to Siebel. <laughs> mm. Mm. You know, trying to make right. Siebel look like a bully. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, like... Um, I'm not quite sure why it is, but, but you're right. People used to, to hit a lot harder, you know, uh, companies did. Um, and, um, there seems to be now more, um, maybe it's because the startup ecosystem is so networked, you know, everyone's friends with somebody who's friends with a competitor that, uh, people tend not to, to do that anymore. I mean, there was religious hate between Informix and Oracle, by way of example, right? And I mean, there are lots of others that you could point to where they were just like. The other thing I wonder is, is the introduction of uh, Gen Z and the millennials and, uh, you know, some of us o- old pirates or some of us pirates are getting a little older. So I wonder if the combination of the generation behind us being nicer and us getting a little older <laughs> is, is taking some of the edge out. I don't know what it is. You know, when, when I was doing Yammer, you know, taking Benioff's own advice that we should punch up, you know, we would come out and attack Salesforce chatter. And, um, I was always trying to see if I could goad him into punching down and hitting back at us. And, uh, I never could get him to do it. <laughs> of course, the minute you do that, you win, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. So he was too <laughs> the smart. The minute to they that. respond, it's over. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then um, strive for a larger tent. Yeah. I mean, so, so we're using this metaphor of startup evangelism as like political movements. Um, and I think it's a useful analogy. That being said, I would caution startups uh, to stay away from partisan political battles, you know, um, you know, great you know, political movements try to find ways to work with both parties when, when possible and, and not unnecessarily alienate either side. And, you know, the, the country right now is very divided over politics, um, especially in an election year. And you don't want to bring that polarization into your company. You know, I, I sometimes see CEOs, um, you know, getting very, uh, political and, and, and partisan terms. And I kind of wonder, you know, whether they're, they're, they're going to be alienating, you know, half their employees or half their customers. And I guess in the Bay area it's probably not half their employees, but you know, a, a significant number. And, um, and in a weird way, I think they're putting somebody else's movement ahead of their own, uh, by, by, by doing that, you know, um, uh, the, the, the most popular politicians, have something like a 50 to 55% approval rating. That's pretty much as good yeah. as it gets. Um, whereas if you're, you know, a, a company with a great product, there's no reason you can't have like an 80 to 90%. Yeah. Approval rating. 80% of people think Pampers are great. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. And so I think, you know, um, and so I, this is where like, you know, again, strive for a large tent. Don't try to unnecessarily alienate, uh, people. Um, is, is is the takeaway there? Yeah, I always wonder when they do it. You know, you see the My Pillow guy uh, at a Trump rally, or you see um, the other business leaders. Uh, you, you see this a lot, of course, with Hollywood folks and 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 musical artists and and, and the like. And it's like, I, look, and I take stands on things publicly, right. but I don't make them party oriented. Right. I make them issues oriented. Um, and I'm also not the CEO of a public company. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is where, you know, um, Benioff has not followed this this playbook. Um, and, you know, may, maybe you get to a point where you're so big that it doesn't matter um, and you can kind of afford to do it. Um, but um, I, you know, you know, Elon takes, takes stands too. It's, you know, at some point people want to uh, take positions on things that are important to them. And, um, but I, but, you know, I, I think that in general, Elon's been pretty good about, um, not unnecessarily alienating, um, uh, people on, on either side, especially on issues that are, let's call it tangential to what he's doing. So, you know, I think he's willing to alienate somebody on the issue of climate change, which is very fundamental to what Tesla is doing. But, um, but I think he's try to, you know, not, not alienate people over again, partisan issues. So this is a side note, but while we're on it, so what do you think maybe motivates him to, you know, smoke po pot on the, on the Rogan podcast? <laughs> I think, uh, well, didn't, didn't, you know, I think Rogan, they were drinking whiskey first and I think it's, it's Rogan's genius to, to get people to feel like they're just hanging out with a friend and they kind of, you know, lose a little bit of, 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 um, of, of context and thinking about where they are. And, um, you know, so that was, I mean, I, I don't know, that, that was pretty much as, 
They were drinking so really his good PR whiskey. PR person was probably losing their mind because that yeah. was probably not in the plan, right? <laughs> yeah, it definitely wasn't in the plan. And you know, he was drinking whiskey, and he probably got he just got lulled into a to a you know a little bit of false complacency, I guess. I mean, I think it makes him more human, but uh, right. Uh, well, I, well, that's know. the other thing is you know w- what you see is really what you get with Elon. Um, I mean, I remember you know years ago I was talking to him, and he starts telling me this theory about how the world is, is basically a simulation. And, um, and I'm thinking, you know, gee, I hope this, he keeps this to himself because people are just going to think he's nuts. If he starts going out there and talking about how the world's just like, like a simulation, like the matrix is how it is. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I'm like, okay, it's good. He's just talking to his friends about this and, you know, well, three months later, I see him doing an interview and he just starts talking about it, you know? And <laughs> so I, I think, you know, kind of what, what you see is what you get with him. And um, he, he doesn't think too, there, there isn't that much of a difference between the, the public and private Elon. And, and um, so in that sense, I, he, he maybe wasn't letting his guard down. He was just having a good time with Rogan and, you know, decided to do it. So that, that, that was kind of it. Uh, you know, looking, I don't know that I can defend or support everything he says or does far from it. But um, the thing that I tried to highlight to people is, so what do you think the person who does the kinds of things he's doing looks like? Do you think they look like a former McKinsey consultant with an MBA right. from Harvard? <laughs> I don't know. I think they look like a madman who smokes pot whenever he feels like it and does right. whatever the other, whatever else fuck he wants to do and doesn't give a shit. That that's who I think does that exponential stuff. It's it's not some button down management consultant type, <laughs> right? Well, if you've if you've been as successful as he has in bending the world to your point of view, you know you probably aren't going to be overly concerned about you know. Smoking something on Rogan, I guess, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and this sort of night gets us nicely to um, work with the press and influencers in the right way. So, so what's r- the right way versus the wrong way here, David? Well, you just have to remember that their agenda is not necessarily your agenda. And, you know, even Silicon Valley reporters, to take an example, they always want to talk about what I call the insider's game. You know, they want to talk about your financing plans and your valuation and are you a unicorn and you know, are you going to IPO or, you know, are you going to get acquired or whatever? And those things don't serve your movement, right? That's not talking about the change you want to create in the world. And so it's fine to work with press and influencers, but you have to remember to serve your movement and stay uh, to talk about those things and not the insider's game. And I think, you know, you can't just go into an interview, you think I'm just going to answer, you know, every reporter's questions because they're just not interested in necessarily the same things that you are. Um, so, so work with them, but just remember to serve your movement. You know, I'll be curious to get, get your reaction. So of course I agree with you completely. I also think, and this is a controversial point of view with some people that exactly what you just said applies to investor relations as well as public relations that, Part of the CEO's job and the degree to which the rest of the executive team is engaging with the street. And I think it's a very healthy thing when there are, there are multiple senior executives engaging with the street. I thought, should think it shows a lot of strength and transparency. But anyways, mm-hmm. that, that spending 
10 minutes or eight minutes or whatever it is at the front of the earnings call to talk about our movement, to talk about the incredible momentum, to talk about the possibility of the future that we see and why that possibility matters so much and why we get up every day here at carbodingulation.com and work so hard to bring this new reality into being, et cetera, et cetera. And I know the finance types go, nobody wants to hear that. They want to get to the, you know, right. the, the numbers and the earnings growth and what are the margins do right. in the corner and <laughs> right. Well, and my perspective is, look, you can read all that fucking shit. We put that all up on right. the website. What they want to hear is the tone from the CEO on, on the vision, right. on the strategy, and you know, where's the category going, and where's the, what's the cool new technology, and why this is all going to matter. But anyway, I want you, I'd love your reaction to all that. Yeah, I mean, make them listen to it. You know, Your job is not necessarily to serve their agenda. It's to serve the agenda of your movement. Thank you. <laughs> the number of times I've heard a CFO or a VP of IR saying, well, that's not what they want to hear. They want to get right to the numbers and all that. That's the fluff. They don't want to hear right. the fluff. I'm like, right. um, hey, this is what we're about. Right. It's only fluff if you don't really believe it. I mean, again, Elon talks about it a lot. Um, now, I do think you want to be able to back it up. One of the things that makes it, you know, not fluff, partly it's got to be authentic, but also partly it's got to be backed up with real execution, real numbers. Um, you know, I think the, the last piece of advice that, that I, I give in this piece is to stay grounded. And it's important not to go too far with movement marketing. You have to remember that we're talking about business here, you know, and right. we're, not, we're not elevating the world's consciousness as we were claimed. And if you start using grandiose language like that without backing it up, um, that's going to subject you to mockery and ridicule. <laughs> so, yes. you know, so, so, so don't, don't misunderstand what we're saying. Like we're telling you to up-level your message, but not to such a extreme extent that like, frankly, you're clowning yourself like the way that we worked it, you know, you're not elevating the world's consciousness. So, you know, keep it, <laughs> keep, keep, keep it, keep it grounded. You know, it's, it's gotta be an authentic message. It's gotta be, a message that that makes sense for for your company and what you're doing, and um, you know, I think in that regard, Salesforce, you know, maybe a better example than Tesla because Tesla is doing something. You know, moving the world sustainable energy is a very very big goal, and it has you know very sexy products with these Tesla cars. Whereas you know, Salesforce was about CRM, and it should you know, and so their their mission was to move business to the cloud. I think. The, the the mission that you develop has to be has to relate to the actual product that you have and what you're you know what what you're trying to accomplish. It can't be so far removed that um, you know people call call bullshit on you. Like, yeah, the pizza you know, company that work. Yeah, the pizza company that says it's curing cancer might be a stretch, right? Right, right exactly. Yeah, and we work just became a joke, and of course. Turns out it is a joke. But, but, but what, you, what you wonder is if they had approached it a different way, could it have been different? I mean, I think there had to be a way to make that company successful. It certainly had product market fit. Well, and the crazy thing is, had they, had they and I, I don't know all the ins and outs, but you probably would know it better than I do. But in a, in a COVID and post-COVID world, the ability to have an ultimate flexibility with uh, office space and sort of reimagine uh, reimagine themselves as if I could the AWS of office space. Who knows? They could have been a very important company. 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly was uh, a tr- terrific thing for all of our startups to be able to just go get space without, you know, without having a long term lease or without doing, you know, a lot of credit check. But but frankly, recessions like the one we've been through are uh, are the reason why landlords want term and credit. So in a bull market, it's easy to make co working pencil as a business model. But when you know when you go into a down market and all of a sudden there's tremendous vacancy, that's when it's very problematic not to have term, you know, term leases. I just read today, David, Stanford did some research. 42% of U.S. workers now work from home. 42% of workers. Yeah. It's a, it's a big change. I think, you know, this now I, I do think offices will come back because I do think there's a lot of people stuck at home who are kind of sick of, um, you know, who, who would like to get to the office and interact with people. And I, so I think offices will make a big comeback next year. But I also think that the work from home thing is here to stay. And so greater flexibility will now just be part of our working relationships. I think in a weird way, I think corporate headquarters will start to be designed more like co-working spaces, but just for that company's employees, mm-hmm. where it'll be like, okay, you can stay, you can work from home two days a week. And then the other three days you come into the office and there's no reason to give you like a set cube or something because, um, you know, we're, we're keeping things flexible, but and I th- so I think we end up with like some sort of hybrid. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. All right, David, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? No, I think covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love your thinking. You have a, a mind I enjoy hanging out with uh, very much. And I, uh, I deeply appreciate you, you wrote this article and uh, we've had this opportunity to uh, pop the hood and get into it. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. And there's, there's nobody who I've, you know, cribbed more ideas from than you. So... <laughs> I'm sure you recognize them in the, in the article. <laughs> I love it. I love every inch of it. <laughs> okay. Thanks, David. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Chris. See ya. Well, there it is. The legendary David Sachs. Thank you so much, David. Deeply appreciate you visiting uh, with me today. And um, you can find David on the internet at craftventures.com. And again, if you want to uh, read his blog post on movement marketing, go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. They're going to help you conquer your category at A-T-R-E.N-E-T with a legendary website. That's Atranet. Also, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. We are produced and edited by the legendary Jason DeFilippo. If you're in tech, check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical execution at Lockhead.com by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. And um, Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Uh, the thought I'll leave you with today is one of my all-time favorite quotes. It's from Margaret Mead, and she said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So thank you so much for uh, your time, your attention, for hanging out. Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.